We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 4 this morning. Last week we went through, in a sense, the entire chapter, um, chapter 3. But this week we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And I was thinking this morning as we were doing Advent, how important it is to sometimes just stop and listen to the Lord, to think about God's blessings, to be aware of them. And I was thinking about a time, and I was in Bible school, and it was one of those times that I've, I've talked about before, but a little different. This was a little earlier in my education, and I was just overwhelmed with, with uh, trying to work and provide for my family and go to school at the same time. And, you know, you get so busy, you don't know what's going on around you. And one day as I was walking from our apartment back to the campus for a class, all of a sudden I heard the birds singing and I saw flowers and I saw God's creation around me. And it just dawned on me. It's probably been several years since I even paid attention. Well, it's that way with the things of the Lord. We get so used to hearing them that we stop paying attention. And sometimes we just need to stop and listen to the Lord. This is an amazing time of the year to think about God's goodness and what God did in sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this earth and the blessings of the new covenant that we have in him, the spirit of God living within us and our sins taken totally away, paid for in full, one time for all time. We're gonna be in a few moments in Nehemiah chapter four. Last week we touched on Nehemiah's commitment to rebuild the Jerusalem walls and the gates. Nehemiah had seen God return the Jews back to their homeland, just as he had promised that he would bring them back after exile. Nehemiah knew that God was faithful. He also knew that a kingdom wasn't a kingdom without a king. So Nehemiah, just like the other Old Testament prophets that were post the kings of Israel, was waiting for that descendant that would sit on David's throne. He was looking for the Mashiach, the Messiah. God had spoken to David back in 2 Samuel chapter seven. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Also, Zechariah preceded Nehemiah, at least in this prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt the foal of a donkey. No doubt who this prophecy was about. It was about Jesus Christ that would come and rule and reign. Nehemiah knew that the king was coming. He did not know when, but at least in part by 
defending Jerusalem by building the walls, he in his mind was preparing for the coming of the king. Last week, we also see how the Saul, excuse me, how the people of Judah worked together to accomplish the task. Each family, each clan doing their own part, building adjacent sometimes to their very homes. And they built the wall in 52 days. Each group worked together with the same ultimate goal to build a proper fortification around Jerusalem. Some groups built sections of the wall. Some built specific gates. The people had different abilities. Some were laborers. Some were blacksmiths. Some carpenters. Some stone cutters and stone layers. And we're going to see in the next few weeks, some were even needed to protect the builders. So they were warriors. But every job was important. It wasn't like one thing was above another. And you know, the same is in the true in this church today. God has given various gifts to complete the task that he's called us to. He's given us spiritual gifts. Every one of us has at least one gift or multiple gifts given given to us at the moment of salvation. Remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 12? Of 1 Corinthians, for in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, am I not of the body? Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And then in verse 18, but now God has set the members, each one of them in the body just as he pleased. God has put us in the body, given us spiritual gifts for the very purpose that he has chosen. For he's sovereign. He knows what's best. And every position in the body of Christ is just as important as any other position. Every every part of the body has a different function. One part is not more important than the other. To use our spiritual gifts he has given us to fulfill our place in the body is the most honorable, important service that we could ever fulfill. And then in Nehemiah chapters 4, 5, and 6, after the workers had begun to build, they faced opposition. If you're going to do anything in the Christian life, you will face opposition. Satan always is always opposes the work of the Lord. Nothing will ever be accomplished in the Lord's service without opposition. Just count on it. So we should never be surprised when it comes, should we? We should be prepared. We should actually be expecting it. It's inevitable. We must never forget the true nature of every unbeliever. They are sinners by nature, born sinners, without God and without hope. They're also called enemies of God. Now, that's expressed in different ways. But the Bible is very clear. Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 1, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, that's the word hostile is haters, haters in mind engaged in evil deeds. 
every believer is against God. Un, excuse me, every unbeliever is against God. He's against God's kingdom, his sovereignty, and he's against God's people. They are offended by God's holiness and justice. Understand, unbelievers are trusting in their own way of righteousness. If they see their need at all, they're trying to make themselves right before God, which is a rejection of God's way, of God's plan. The gospel, its exclusivity, is offensive to the unbelieving world. And they despise those who live holy lives. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire, that word means to determine or to choose to live godly in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. You know, Satan's tactics, his schemes never change. And the enemies of God use the very same tactics today because there's nothing new under the sun. He doesn't have a different set of tricks, does he? The attacks against Adam and Eve, Job, Jesus in the wilderness, and every spiritual attack in the word of God and today throughout church history has always been the same attacks. Maybe in slightly different packages, but the same attacks. In Nehemiah 4 through 6, we see six of those basic attacks used by Satan against God's people. If you're working for the kingdom of God's dear son, you must understand these and be prepared for them because they will come. So it will be helpful for us over the next few weeks to take a look at the weapons, the tactics used by Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 2, we've already seen a bit of this persecution. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 10, when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Sanballat, an inhabitant of Beth Horon, basically a governor of Syria, and Tobiah, the governor of the Ammonite nation. The capital is the same place as Ammon, George, Ammon Jordan, excuse me, today. So these two men were displeased that they were coming to seek the welfare of the people of Jerusalem. Why? Because God's interest was a threat to their interest. The security of Jerusalem would undermine their power and ability to take advantage of the Jewish people as they had done for a long time. If Nehemiah succeeded in building the walls, the people of Jerusalem would have a new sense of courage and they would have security. Jerusalem would be a real city, defensible, basically self-sufficient, without any need to come to people like these two men for favors any longer. A fortified Jerusalem would give the Jews safety, power, and independence. Now, Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 19 comes back to this thing again. We see the opposition here. But when Sanballat the Horonite and his servant Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they jeered at us and despised us when they said, what is this thing that you are doing? You're rebelling against the king, aren't you? 
Geshem was the king of Qadar, one of the prime Arab groups of that day. They had great influence from Arabia to Judah. So now there's three men mentioned way back in chapter two. These three men were powerful leaders. I like to think of them as schoolyard bullies because they're very much like schoolyard bullies. We could even call them the three stooges of Palestine because in their desperation, they might appear to a mature believer as using silly tactics. I think so. They attempt to intimidate using ridicule. And that's the tactic we see in verses 1 through 6. Verse 19 again, they jeered at us and despised us. The word jeered in the Hebrew means to raise the head loftily and disdainfully. I mean, it's like, look at what they're doing. I mean, look how foolish these people are. And they were despi- and they despised us, excuse me, to mock or to deride is the basic meaning of the word. So what is this thing you're doing? You're rebelling against the king, aren't you? Notice the implication, the sarcasm. What do you think you're doing, in other words? You're rebelling against the king, aren't you? It's interesting. Nehemiah had come with the king's permission and authority. He had ladders of passage. He actually had a letter to get the lumber from the king's forest. These three stooges were not trying to phase Nehemiah. They were trying to cause the people of Israel to question Nehemiah's authority. To confuse the people. To intimidate the people. They were attempting to persuade the people that Nehemiah was in rebellion against the king. That was a threat. It's very similar to what we see back in Genesis chapter 3. Where the serpent said to the woman... Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Questioning God's word. Questioning what God has said. See, his tactics never change. It's meant to cause us to question his word, his direction, and his plans. This is what he says today to people. I've heard it. Heard it in my own life. But I've heard it from many others. Is the Bible really God's word? Did he really say that? Does God really expect me to sacrifice my time and resources for kingdom work? For Cornerstone Church? Does God actually want me to have my family worship after a long day of work? I mean, I'm tired. I just want to sit down and watch TV. Does God really expect me to share Christ with my family, friends, and co-workers? It could cost me my popularity, my friends, or my job. Does God really want me to live a godly life? After all, I can't live perfectly anyway, so what does it matter? He causes us to question. That's a tactic of Satan. But Paul wrote to the Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, for we are not ignorant of his schemes, of his devices. 
So notice again back in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, verse 20. Notice Nehemiah's response. So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. He did not even appeal to the king's support. He appealed to God. He declared that God is in control and God would give them success. He told them exactly what they were going to do. We're going to rise and we're going to build. And finally, he made it clear that those outside the kingdom had no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. They didn't have any right to get involved, to say what would happen, what should happen. They had no part. And here in chapter 4, Sanballat continued to use ridicule. But this time, not so much to motivate the workers of Israel, but to motivate his army. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? His ridicule is now directed primarily for the benefit of the Samaritan army, for his people. It's now the issue of the morale of his army. And he said in the presence of his brothers and his army, it says. And notice his words as he continues. What are these feeble Jews doing? These Jews are weak. They're feeble. They don't have the ability to do this. Will they restore it for themselves? Again, they don't have the strength or the ability. They can't do it themselves. If they would do it, they would have to get help to do it. Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? I suggest that, at least I suspect, that Sambalot is suggesting here that they do not have a time, enough time to accomplish the task before the Samaritans can stop them. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Heaps of stone is literally heaps of dust. I mean, this wall had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. It is in ruins. Sure, there's still stones there, but it's a pile of dust, so to speak. And some of them had been burned into destruction as well, so they would be brittle. So the stones of the former walls lie in a pile of dust, and many have been burned. Look at verse 3. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break it down. Excuse me. He will break down their stone wall. Seems like uh, Tobiah is Sambalot's right-hand man in this endeavor. I don't think he's the same leader that Sambalot is. He was beside him. He was following his lead. 
like a puppet, so to speak. Look at that wall they're building, is what he says. It cannot even handle the weight of a little fox. Ha, ha, ha. That's the idea. Was this true? No, it wasn't. It was a lie. This was psychological warfare. It's meant to motivate his army and to demoralize the Jewish workers. Notice Nehemiah's response. This time, he doesn't say a word to the opposition, to his adversaries. Notice what he does in verse 4 and 5. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from their from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. You see, this was God's endeavor, not Nehemiah's, not the people of Judah. It was God's, and not just any God's endeavor. This was Elohim, or El. That word used for God here means a strong one with great authority. Nehemiah calls on the only true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one who is omnipotent and has sovereign authority. The one that everyone will answer to. This clearly demonstrates that Nehemiah's faith was in the one that's able to accomplish the task. Nehemiah had to be concerned about his workers not getting demoralized. So his prayer begins. Not, in, not only calling on the one that's able, but also reminding the listeners, listeners that their trust must be in Elohim's power and authority. Nehemiah points out their situation, for we are despised. Now, he's not informing God here. He's asking for God to hear him in this difficult time. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Nehemiah next asks God to reverse the situation. Turn back their taunt, their reproach or scorn on their heads. Give them a taste of their own medicine, in other words. He's not praying for revenge. Nehemiah is praying for justice. Give them up to be plundered. Like for a spoil or a booty in the land where they are captives. He's likely saying in a land of captivity. The idea here, give them over to be plundered or to be made spoil or, or booty so that they become captives in the land known for captivity. It's already a land of captivity. Make them the ones that are captive. And then he prays, do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. Nehemiah is praying that they're going to be held accountable for their sin against the Jews. That their sin not be covered in God's eyes that it not be blotted out from his sight. He's praying again for justice. He's praying for just judgment. 
This is not a personal issue for Nehemiah. He's concerned about the morale of the people. He's concerned about the safety of Jerusalem. He's concerned about the kingdom of God being reestablished. He's concerned about the king's honor. It's not about Nehemiah. It's about the king, the kingdom, and the king's people. So he prays to the Lord, asking God to deal with the adversaries. Look at verse 6. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So we built the wall. They got to work. Believing God's word that the wall should be rebuilt. They simply at this point ignored the adversaries. It says and the whole wall was joined together to half its height. Now understand building the wall to half its height was not half the work. It might be halfway built from top to bottom, but the higher you go, the harder it gets. There's more. The more stones that they were able to remove from the dust pile, the rubbish, the less were available. Many of the original wall, many of the stones had been destroyed or burnt. So it got harder and harder the higher they went. Not only was it higher, but there was less available, less resources, less stones. For the people had a mind to work. Under Nehemiah's leadership, they were committed. They were persistent. Each had a mind to work. It was under his leadership, but there was a greater purpose. This was about the kingdom. It was about the king that would come. While this was God's plan and he is without a doubt sovereign, notice they did not sit back and wait for God to do it himself. I mean, in believing in God's sovereignty, we can just say, well, God's going to do it. God will take, he don't have to use me. But they got busy and went to work. God had decreed that the children of Judah would build the walls. This was God's plan. And the people believed God. So they wanted to have a part in God's sovereign plan. Not because God couldn't do it without them. For God could do it without them. But because God has chosen us. And today. In the church age. He's given us new hearts. With the law written on our hearts. That desire to serve him. So even more than in Nehemiah's day, there's no greater honor than to serve the King of Kings. He is Lord of heaven and earth. In the fifth vision in the book of Zechariah, after the reconstruction of the temple had begun, God spoke to Zechariah, trying to build the temple and struggling. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. 
even though we have the responsibility to serve God in his kingdom in the church today. We're not trusting in our own efforts. You know, it's easy when we start to work and get busy to start depending on what we're doing to accomplish God's work. It's just a privilege to serve him. But we know who gives the increase. It is God himself. May we always depend upon him. I spent years in ministry depending on my own effort, working as hard as I could. And then I realized it's not about me. It's about him. And that drove me to my knees in prayer, trusting him. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. May we always depend upon him to give the increase. May we work hard. May we get involved in the work, but trust him. In that same chapter of Zechariah, God also said, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands shall also complete it. It was no different with Nehemiah. They knew where their strength came from to build a wall. By God's power, the church will continue to be built today. And as we've said several times, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God has chosen us here at Cornerstone. Or if you're visiting from another church, he's chosen you and your church to build the kingdom where you live. To proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing that we do apart from the gospel matters. When we do good works for the kingdom of God, it should stem from the gospel. Let us get busy that we might glorify God and his church be built. Now, if you're here today and you're not at peace with God, you do not have the Spirit of God in you. You cannot serve the Lord in these endeavors. Salvation is only by God's grace. Through faith, only through faith, and only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, He's Lord, Lord of heaven and earth, King of the spiritual kingdom, Head of the church the firstborn of the church. He's Jesus. The Hebrew, Yeshua, means God saves. Remember, thinking about Christmas, the season, Matthew 1, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The word itself means God saves. In death, he experienced the very wrath of a holy God, the wrath that we deserve. Quoted it a few weeks ago. You know, Isaiah is known as the fifth gospel of the word. Isaiah 53, but he was wounded 
excuse me, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, correction that brought us peace. It was on him. And with his wounds, we're healed. Jesus bore the sins. He took the wrath of God that we deserve. And he took it for everyone that would ever believe. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And he rose from the dead the third day according to the scriptures, according to those prophecies. Victorious over sin, death, and the grave. Demonstrating that he was God and that God had accepted the sacrifice. He's also Christ, the Mashiach, Messiah. The king that was promised long ago. He's the one that they had waited for. For centuries. One day he will come again. We talked about that hope in Advent this morning. But when he comes again. He will righteously judge. Everyone that will ever. That has ever lived. Unless you are trusting him. Who bore your sins. He will, excuse me, say that again. Unless we're trusting him who bore our sins, we will suffer eternal judgment in a place called the lake of fire. May the Spirit of God this morning give you repentance. May you admit not only that you're a sinner. You know, I find a lot of people admit that they're sinners but they don't understand what that means. To be separated from God's grace and mercy for eternity and be exposed to his wrath. Not only are we sinners, but we're sinners deserving judgment. May you look in faith along to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. May God give you a heavenly birth. Look to him. Let's pray.